You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. In the name of Allah, the uh, in the name of Allah the Almighty. Um, <clears throat> we are now, you know, we're going to be discussing uh, the news and the weather, what's going on in the news, um, and then we will be getting into our main segments of the morning. In uh, God willing. So uh, what's what's the weather weather looking like today? As we, as all those that are outside will see that um, it's been a quite <coughs> wet, wet start to the day. Um, so today we'll, we'll see cloudy conditions and some isolated showers early on in the morning. Um, but turning sunnier around the middle of the day with most showers somewhat easing. But cloud will rebuild by the evening. Then tonight uh, we'll see mostly cloudy skies and some light showers. Initially, the odd clear break cannot be ruled out. A band of heavier showers is set to move in by the early hours and through dawn. Uh, then on Thursday, tomorrow, um, heavy showers will be the first thing in the morning. These will spread north eastwards as sunny spells develop early in the afternoon. Patchy cloud and a few further showers will develop later dry by evening. Um, on Friday to Sunday, low pressure will continue to be dominant through the rest of the week. On Friday and for the most part of Saturday, there will be a mix of sunny spells and isolated showers pushing in from the south. These heavy at times, longer outbreaks of rain can be expected on Saturday evening. These clearing to showers overnight into Sunday temperatures near the seasonal average. So we can see throughout the week, um, yeah. throughout this week, um, will be quite wet week and showers will be expected and low mm. pressures as expected yeah. throughout uh, this season. <coughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, you know that's the typical British um, you know uh, weather, weather yeah. that we're getting back into, yeah. and uh, you know we we'll we are used to it, but you know it was nice to have uh, you know we had a good time. In the sun this it was year. A, it was a long yeah, summer. This it was time. a long summer this time. It was nice. Early, early October. Actually, in the middle of October, even we were having yeah, some nice weather. Yeah. It just, it's been like two, three weeks since yeah. it started getting. Because yeah. usually when you, uh, <clears throat> when I used to drop my son to school, mm. um, it was still fairly hot and we were surprised because yeah. you don't usually have that kind of weather when you're starting school again after mm. summer. So it was nice. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and you know, uh, I'm sure most of our listeners are aware of the main, you know, the main headline, the main story that's going on in the world, uh, yeah. uh, the Gaza-Israel, you know, conflict that is happening, and you know the atroc- atrocities that uh, Hamas did, um, you know, uh, act upon. You know, we we completely condemn what they did, what their actions were, because it completely goes against the teachings of Islam, yeah. because uh, they killed illis- innocent civilians, right? Yeah. And uh, you know, in the uh, teachings of the Holy Quran, it clearly states that during even during warf- warfare, you are not to you are not allowed to kill children, women, and old people, yeah, be, right? Uh, yeah. uh, but that is what Hamas carried out with their attack, and that is completely against the teachings of Islam. Yeah. But on the other hand, you know, um, just per the guidance of uh, you know His Holiness, uh, the current Caliph of the MDM Muslim uh, worldwide community, you know, uh, the um, what Israel is doing to Gaza. Uh, is completely wrong as well. It, it is a genocide now. <clears throat> it is essentially a genocide in the sense that, uh, you know, they, they say they're trying to wipe out Hamas. Yeah. But that's just 
like a few couple yeah. hundred people, right? Yeah, just so they can wipe out Hamas. They yeah. are destroying people's homes, destroying yeah. families. Um, so they they told like um, what what 1.4 million yeah. people? Yeah, 1.4 million who are in the north from uh, from the north to yeah. southern Gaza. Yeah, and like the north has basically been decimated. Now. Yeah, exactly. They, uh, I was reading yesterday that 51 percent of the buildings in Gaza have now been destroyed. <coughs> so imagine that 2.2 million people hmm. that are living. In, yeah. a sh- in a very dense place. Mm. Now, 51% of those buildings are, are destroyed. They're living in an even denser yeah. place. So, so they don't know. <coughs> so they're basically living outside. There's no electricity, yeah. no water, no food, which is uh, essentially mm. a war crime. Yeah. against the international law. Yeah, and you know, a lot of uh, spokespeople have spoken up against this, that, you know, instead of just completely... Uh, you know, bombing the entire place mm. just to get rid of certain militants and certain people of opposition. Why not? You know, they have a very large yeah. military where they have, you know, strong military. Why not send people on the ground and, you know, like take out those people that you're opposing? Yeah, right? they have, I have I have heard some <laughs> spokesperson mention um, sending special troops yeah. as they did yeah. for um, in Pakistan yeah. for Osama bin Laden. Exactly. But exactly. Um, that could cause more catastrophe and more innocent civilians can be killed if it's not carried out carefully it needs to be no, a very but, but it's, it's special it's, it's a lot it would be a lot safer right? but the thing is israel is also considering a ground invasion already mm. from the skies from the uh, sea mm. because and they've also sent letters mm. to the public mm. stating that if you do not um, move to the south and mm. you remain in the north you'll be considered a terrorist yeah. so anyone that's going to stay there because it's their home it's their mm. land that's what they think mm. that's what they believe so them staying there they they are now considering them to be terrorists <coughs> which is completely wrong Yeah. so people have the right obviously to defend of course. their home of that's course. what Israel um, is saying that they're doing mm. but in that defence they need to look at the innocent lives that have been taken Yeah. that's completely wrong um, it is said now that around 3,000, hmm. more than 3,000 now, I believe, kids and babies yeah. have been killed. Have been killed. Which is outrageous. It's t- exactly. It's just, it's, you know, these are, um, like, essentially, it's war crimes that they are committing. Exactly. And, uh, you know, the, um, <clears throat> uh, the, the UN chief has, uh, you know, he's called the Gaza situation yeah. dire. Yeah. Uh, as it um, I was just listening yeah. today on the way here that uh, Israel have asked for the UN hmm. General Secretary, who's yeah. at a very high position, yeah. to uh, resign because the comments that he made. Hmm. Uh, and the comments that he made were that the attacks that Hamas did on hmm. Israel yeah. were basically because of the occupation of yeah. 56 years, hmm. which I believe he's right to say. Hmm. There's nothing wrong in that. That's not a lie. That's what's happening over <laughs> there right now. Yeah. But... Because he has said this, Israel has asked for him to step down and resign because no. they don't, they do not agree yeah. with his comments. Yeah, so so the exact the Sky News has uh, you know quoted this as well, and they say that Israel Gaza con- uh, latest is that Israel rejects call for ceasefire and says UN chief should resign exactly. as Gaza official says uh, say numbers. Number killed in airstrikes now five thousand seven hundred. Yeah. That's including babies, children, and yeah. normal. Yeah. Uh, so Antonio uh, Guterres, um, you know, he's the UN Secretary General. He says that I'm deeply concerned about the clear violations of international humanitarian law yeah. that we are witnessing. Yeah. And um, you know that that's it's just it's such a shame what is happening. Yeah. Whereas you know <coughs> uh, when. Uh, 
the atrocities were being committed by Russia against Ukraine. Yeah. You, you know, saw that millions yeah. upon billions yeah. of aid yeah. went to Ukraine. Exactly. Right? We get it. It's a much yeah. bigger country, yeah. much bigger population. Mm. But uh, you know, now that you know mm. these, um, it's happening in a Muslim Muslim place. Yeah. Uh, but and you know, and we're not saying that they're not sending humanitarian. They mm. are sending. Yeah. As in, Rishi Sunak did announce the mm. other day that um, I think an additional twenty million or yeah. or, or more than that, mm. he has announced, and he's already sent ten million humanitarian. Mm. But the problem is that the trucks. Yeah. That are being sent inside Gaza are what what, what Biden announced were twenty. Yeah. Yeah. So since the humanitarian crisis has started, mm. only twenty trucks have gone in. Mm. And I, I was reading yesterday that on a normal day, yeah. Gazans consume around five hundred trucks mm. of, food, of food, of aid. Yeah. So every day before this mm. war mm. or genocide started, mm. they consumed five hundred trucks. Mm. But now, since this humanitarian crisis yeah. started, only twenty have gone in. And it's been more than two weeks. What well, it started mm. on October seventh. Yeah. So, if you see the conditions, it's it's very hard. Um, and also, some some people, um, some journalists were mentioning mm. that um, in um, Gaza right now, the yeah. the death, the smell of death is in the air, and there's so many bodies that mm. are under the rubble. Yeah. That flies. There's so many flies in in Gaza right now that it's uncontrollable. Hmm. Because obviously, when there's dead bodies, the 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 smell is going hmm. to rise and it's going to attract flies, and there's no facilities of 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 uh, going to toilet anymore. Hmm. So people are trying to find wherever they can go hmm. outside. And you know the thing is, uh, okay, Hamas is uh, you know the controlling body of Gaza, let's say, yeah. right? Uh, but what, what in West Bank, which is literally exactly. totally is under Israel's control, right? It's essentially, you know, Martian law over no, there. There's no Hamas there. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's martial law over there. There's no Hamas there, but 96 people have been killed yeah, over there. Exactly. And at least 1,650 people have been wounded. And there's several, I don't know, about hundreds of yeah. people in prison for no yeah. reason at all. So <coughs> the the atrocities that have been committed mm. towards these um, Palestinians, Yeah. I think what uh, the general UN secretary said was right. And... Mm. Um, there's nothing wrong with stating the truth of what's yeah. happening around the world. It's yeah. they have the right to defend themselves, of course, of but course. there's a limit. Uh, there was a there was a tweet I I was reading that I it's eye for an eye, hmm. so it's not not eye for a two million um, population, yeah. which are closely dense in a dense uh, area. Hmm. So that's what initially is being um, committed here. Yeah. But you know, uh, of course, um, you know, as uh, as this is going on, you know, this uh, atrocity that is happening, uh, you know, our thoughts and prayers do go out to all the families all the of families. the loved ones mm. and all Palestinians those, and all the Israelis. Palestinians and the Israelis yeah. uh, who have lost their lives mm. during the you know very uh, ferocious, atrocious attack that Hamas did carry mm. out. Yeah, uh, completely know, against Islam. Islam. Islam is a religion of. Uh, Moderation, mm. a religion of peace, mm. because uh, you know, uh, if you look at the greetings of of today's day and age, you say hello, mm. right? In English, you say hello. Mm. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean anything but just saying hi to someone, just welcoming someone, just yeah. welcoming someone, right? Uh, but if you look at uh, Islam, is uh, we say Assalamu alaikum mm. wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May the peace yeah. and blessings of Allah, the Almighty, mm. be upon you, yeah. right? If someone could be going through a hard time, but you're just wishing peace yeah, on them, exactly. 
Islam means peace. Islam means the peace. meaning of Islam yes. is peace. And there's uh, <clears throat> another thing I want to mention that um, you know we believe that even killing one person hmm. is as you've killed the whole of humanity. Yeah. So it's completely against the teaching hmm. of Islam. Definitely. It doesn't have to be someone in your religion. Hmm. It means killing anyone of any sect, any race, any faith. Yeah. Killing anyone, hmm. even a single person, means that you have killed. The whole of humanity. That's mentioned in the Holy Quran. Yeah, most okay, that's our belief. That's the that's most the Islamic belief. Most definitely. Um, also, so, um, also regarding the yes. um, situation in uh, Palestine and Israel. Yeah, they are say, they are they are bombing um, um, so um, the the buildings where civilians <coughs> are living, right? Yes. And they claim that Hamas has tunnels. Yes. And living hmm. under the tunnels of hmm. civilian buildings, and of course they are keeping some hostages as well, yeah. as we know in the news. So if they do bomb hmm. civilian sites where they claim the Hamas has are keeping the hostages, yeah. how do they know which building their hostages are in? Hmm. They are essentially putting their hostages in danger as well. Hmm. So they can't, they don't have anything to justify the strikes, the bombings hmm. that's happening, because hostages could be anywhere hmm. under any building. Hmm. They don't know that, but they will yeah. be crushed as well. Yeah. So in a, they should try to um, sort this matter out in a mm. civilized way, in a civilized manner, in a peaceful because, way. Uh, yeah, and of, with less lives uh, of, at risk. Of course, of course. Uh, you know, um, the correct way would be to you know just just single out the you know as they are saying Hamas terrorists, just single them out because the, the, they did commit an act of terrorism, yeah. killing a, a innocent civilians. And everyone agrees with that. Uh, and, you know, n like any Muslim who denies that what they did was wrong is uh, essentially, you know, he's he's going against he's, the teachings yeah. of Islam. Yeah. Right? So, okay. um, completely, completely, Islam completely condemns what they did, what mm. the action was, because completely go goes against Islam. <coughs> but, you know, uh, the retaliation <coughs> which is uh, occurring right now is the scale of it it's completely out of proportion. Yeah, exactly. Right? If you see some of the pictures that <clears throat> are coming out from Gaza, yeah. it literally looks like a nuclear mm. bomb has been hit a certain area. Essentially, yes. Because there's nothing left. Mm. They have literally leveled it mm. to the ground. And these are, you know, the words of uh, uh, their, their leader, exactly. Israel's leader, exactly. the prime minister. Yeah. That uh, they're going to level yeah, yeah. Palestine. Yeah. Which, where innocents mm. are living. Yeah. Half of the population in mm. uh, Gaza are children. Mm. That's why you see three thousand kids, mm. babies, have been killed. Mm. So you know the UN General Secretary, the the words that he did gave that we just mentioned earlier. You know, hopefully, you know the UN Council can look to to <coughs> figure this out and you know uh, make peaceful resolutions and uh, hopefully, you know the. The war crimes uh, or the atrocities yeah. that you know he has mentioned himself as well. Yeah. Hopefully, they come to an end, and uh, you know the. Uh, I think the whole world understands. Yeah. It. As in, you see protests happening yeah. all around the world. Yeah. And anyone that has what, TV mm. and yeah. listening to the news or social media, yeah, can see every, the, the mm. voices that are rising mm. up now against yeah. the war crimes that are being committed. Mm. But you know the, the the main reason you know like uh, it is so. Doing protests, you know, like uh, essentially, we we can see there's no there's no positive outcome, yeah. in, in the sense that you're going out there, you're disturbing, you're disrupting everything, mm. but you know we're, we're not the decision makers. Yeah. 
yeah. and it's not up to the decision makers to even you know to adhere to whatever you're doing so obviously what we can do is we can you know we can donate to charities mm. we can you know remember the loved ones in our prayers mm. and you know we can just uh, seek the help of Allah the mm. almighty and that is the correct because path. we are not on uh, in, yeah. in power yeah and you know in the hadith it says that if you cannot stop something hmm. uh, with your hand, yeah. you should try to stop it with your tongue. Yeah. And if you can't stop it with your tongue, you should at least try think that it's wrong yes. and pray for it. Yes. So if we're not in a position that we can do any anything physically, yeah. we should at least try pray for the victims, yeah. pray for the pray for the um, uh, those that are, hmm. are occupying, yeah. and um, make Allah um, guide everyone hmm. to make this into a more peaceful and harmonious world. Yeah. Inshallah. It's very um, willing. Uh, so we are, you know, um, we are going to be taking a very short break, and then we will be discussing our first uh, segment of the morning, which is in regards to that, uh, you know, the doctors uh, and nurses are getting burnt out, and what we can do. So don't go anywhere, and do join us after a very short break. Writings of the Promised Messiah, Salam. The real purpose of all the external and internal limbs and faculties that has been bestowed on man is understanding and worship and love of God. That is why, despite a thousand occupations, man does not find his true well-being except in God Almighty. Having acquired great wealth or achieved high office or having become a great merchant or having acquired governing authority or become a great philosopher, he departs in the end from these worldly involvements with a sense of frustration. His heart rebukes him all the time about his deep concern with the world, and his conscience never approves his wiles and deceits and wrongful actions. When he takes stock of man's faculties and powers to discover his highest capacity, we find that he is invested with the faculty of seeking after God so much that he desires that he should become so devoted to God's love that he should have nothing of his own and that everything should become God's. He shares his natural needs like food and drink and rest. God is the light of the heavens and the earth, every light that is visible on the heights or in the valleys, whether in souls or in bodies, whether personal or impersonal, whether apparent or hidden, whether in the mind or outside it, is a bounty of his grace. This is an indication that the general grace of the Lord of the worlds envelops everything and nothing is deprived of that grace. He is the source of all grace, the ultimate cause of all lights and the fountainhead of all mercies. His being is the support of the universe and is the refuge of all high and low. He it is who brought everything out of the darkness of nothingness and bestowed upon everything the mantle of being. No other being than him is in himself present and eternal or is not the recipient of his grace. Earth and heaven, man and animals, stones and trees, souls and bodies have all come into existence by his grace. Writings of the Promised Messiah, Salam. Allah, the Lord of glory, has also given me the glad tidings that some of the nobility and some of the kings will also join our group. He vouchsafed to me the revelation.
I shall grant you blessing upon blessing, so much so that kings will seek blessings from your garments. Those who seek blessings in this manner will enter into the bath, the Pledge of Allegiance. Because of their entering into the bath, their governments will also practically belong to this community. Then I was shown those kings in a vision. They were riding upon horses and were not less than six or seven. I saw in a blessed dream a group of sincere believers and just and righteous kings, some of whom belong to this country, India, some to Arabia, some to Iran, some to Syria, some to Turkey, and some to other regions of which I am not aware. Thereafter, I was told by Allah the Almighty, these people will affirm your righteousness and will believe in you and will call down blessings upon you and will pray for you. I shall bestow great blessings upon you, so much so that kings will seek blessings from your garments and I will join them amongst your sincere followers. This is the dream that I saw, and this is the revelation that was vouchsafed to me by God the All-Knowing. The Promised Messiah, peace be on him, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in Islam, states, If you wish that God should be pleased with you in heaven, unite and be one like two brothers of the same mother. Nobler is he among you, who forgives the sins of his brother more than others, and doomed is he who is stubborn and does not forgive. He has nothing in common with me. Live in fear, lest you be cursed by God. He is holy, and he is a jealous guardian over the honor of his beloved ones. The wicked cannot attain his nearness, the arrogant cannot gain his nearness, nor can the tyrant nor the one who breaks a trust. Nor can he who is not ready to lay down everything for the honor of his name, nor those who fall to the pleasures of the world like dogs and ants and vultures, and who are comfortable with the luxuries of the world. Each unchaste eye is remote from him. Each impure heart knows him not. Those who remain in agony for his cause will be delivered from the fire of hell. He who weeps for him will laugh at last, and he who breaks away from the world for his sake will meet him. Be Allah's friends with all your heart, in all sincerity, gaining his nearness with ever-growing zeal. Be kind to your subordinates, to your wives, and to your less fortunate brothers, so that you may be shown kindness in heaven. Become truly his, so that he may belong to you. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio, broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuhu. Peace and blessings of Allah be on all of our listeners. 
Dear listeners, now we will, after discussing the weather and the news uh, before the break, now we will be moving on to the first segment of the show, which is doctors and nurses are getting burnt out and what can we do? So doctors and nurses will volunteer to work on weekends to reduce waiting lists if they will get paid more for overtime. What are potential long-term solutions for this dilemma. For the first time in the history of the NHS in England, consultants and junior physicians are on strike at the same time today, with other combined walkouts scheduled for next month. Um, we do have a caller with us. We Yes, we do have our first guest of the morning with us uh, in regards to this topic. We have Dr. Aziz uh, Hafiz on the line with us. Uh, who is a doctor in the professional profession of medical field? Uh, Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to the breakfast show, doctor. It's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, just to get into things, uh, why why are the strikes happening, and like, can the strikes even help to resolve the issue? So it's a complex question. Uh, the question is is who you ask. Yeah. So if you ask the the, both the junior doctors and uh, also our consultant colleagues, uh, their key issue is a huge, huge increase in in demand and an unsustainable demand that is actually impacting patient care. Mm. Uh, and the demand being uh, very multifaceted. Clearly, with a growing elderly population, uh, the demand on health service is massive. Yeah. Uh, the resources the, the state has are also limited. Uh, we are going through economic changes. There are multiple questions as to whether the health service has been accurately resourced or not. Uh, that may well be a, a critical question which I'm not uh, going to discuss here. Mm-hmm. Fully speaking, as a, a medical practitioner. So these are the key concerns that our professional colleagues have in that the huge increased workload, workload not necessarily as an impact on an individual, but the impact that that has on the practitioners, be in hospital or elsewhere, in the, the safety of patients. Clearly, when things reach a sustainable amount, whether that is administrative burden, whether that's clinical burden, whether that's pure volume of for clinical work that's through and not having enough resource in terms of manpower and or support services, that then puts the safety of patients at some degree of risk. So, so these are uh, these are the key concerns, and, and and yes, they are linked to how well doctors are then remunerated for this degree of pressure. So, what we then see is response to that. And the response then seeking uh, appropriate remuneration for that workload. So that, is, if I can put it from from my colleague's point of view. Yeah. Uh, sorry, doctor. Um, the line isn't isn't very clear. It's cutting a little bit. Um, can you can you hear me? I can we, we can hear you. We can hear you. It's just that you know when you're speaking a little bit, uh, your your line cuts. 
Um, if you want to call in again and then we will have you back on the air so Dr. Uh, Aziz Hafiz will be joining us uh, after very, uh, a very short uh, while um, so you know the topic at hand you know the points that he was raising is you know uh, it depends on who, who you ask uh, whether you know um, the strikes are helping to resolve the issue everyone you know um, in different positions they will have a different opinion um, and you know the reason the main reason they're occurring is because um, you know the <clears throat> the low the low wage that the doctors and nurses are making right yeah. and essentially you know they're they're helping to I, th- I think it's being a doctor like you can't there's not a a, a job which is uh, more beneficial to humanity yeah exactly exactly right yeah, you're because, helping to save people's lives. Yeah, it's one of the most important jobs. Yeah, world. yeah, <coughs> most definitely. Yeah, and uh, you know, there's uh, you know I've seen on like um, social media and the news and stuff as well. There's uh, many people um, in this profession uh, in the medical field. Mm. They're moving to places such as Australia. Yeah, because you get much more benefits much more, over yeah. there, and <coughs> the pay the pay is, you're is better more. as well. You're you're valued <laughs> more as well. And the thing is, you know, you see celebrities and these uh, sports players, <coughs> the amount of money that they receive yeah. com- compared to the doctors and yeah. the nurses, which mm. are essentially saving lives, yeah. which is the most important thing mm. for a human. Mm. And they are getting paid less. In my opinion, I think they should definitely be paid more definitely. for the value that they put in. Mm. No, but that's, uh, you know, um, we discussed this as well. That you know, um, celebrities and athletes and stuff, they get paid like mm. you know in the millions, but that's because of the, of the support yeah, they get from from the true. fan base, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, so if the doctors <laughs> had a fan base as well, exactly, you know, something like that in play, they should, um, they should, yeah, most definitely, <laughs> they're most saving definitely. your life. Um, <laughs> but you know that is uh, unfortunately the case that you know they their pay. Uh, uh, they believe that you know it's not enough for the, the hours they work as well. It's, yeah, uh, you know, sometimes yeah. they have to work, you know, crazy hour shifts. Yeah, yeah. Stay, stay over the night <clears> with an operation yeah. that they have to do to save this person's life. Hmm. So yeah, I think there should be some sort of um, system made where they are worth and valued more. Hmm. Yeah. So you yeah. know you were you were speaking about the strikes earlier. Yeah. Uh, you were mentioning some uh, facts and figures about yeah. them. Um, so, so with thousands of um, patient appointments said to be cancelled as a result of the strikes, um, I believe we do have Dr. Aziz Hafiz. Okay, on okay. Uh, is is uh, he back on the line? Um, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Peace be upon you, doctor. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullah. I think we're having technical gremlins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, the line is a little bit better now, so we can continue, I believe. Um, so just, yeah, just I, don't, I don't know how much of what I said you got so I'll, I'll, I'll be guided by you what you've heard what you haven't heard <laughs> uh, yeah if you could just uh, sum it up again uh, like uh, what you said basically well, why are the strikes happening and can the strikes help resolve the issue if you could just sum it up as, uh, just, just quickly in, in, in summary um, why I feel colleagues uh, are, are striking is, is, is some key issues is, is an unprecedented workload and a demand uh or from a clinical demand and an administrative demand, and there's a huge increase in patient workload. As we've got a growing population, the health needs are increasing, the resources within the health service are limited, and that increased workload is putting that pressure on medical colleagues, and that ultimately is putting patient safety at risk. So these are the key concerns that colleagues have. Uh, and those concerns are then translated into requests for appropriate remuneration 
for that workload. So that is the the, the key concern they they have. Uh, so that is why I feel people are striking. Obviously, yeah. from a personal point of view, uh, I think you'd asked. Uh, I don't feel striking is a, is an is an appropriate way. That yeah. that is a moral and ethical view that I mm. personally have, particularly as a doctor uh, from in the Indian Muslim community. Yeah. Uh, that I don't feel that is uh, we risk causing more harm to our patients. Mm. The doctor's number one priority is the patients. Yeah. I don't feel our colleagues who are striking have any intent toward our patients. But unfortunately, uh, there is an impact that will happen. And there is the argument this impact is already happening uh, prior to striking. And striking is not going to, striking is just another layer in the already huge difficulties that yeah. the health service is facing. So do you know why doctors and nurses are getting low pay? Uh, sorry, please say that again. Do you know why doctors and nurses are getting the low pay they are getting? So uh, pay is very relative. Pay is very relative. And yeah. You would say that these are uh, highly qualified professionals are getting remunerated appropriately. Everything is very relative. Uh, uh, nursing and medical pay within the UK is not on par uh, with our colleagues in other parts of the Western world. Uh, and it's not a question that the pay is necessarily low. It has not moved with the times. It's not moved with the pressures that are on the system. And there are other economic challenges that the country is facing, as you know. Uh, so it is a fine balance. It's a fine balance that the state has. Uh, also, as doctors, we all need to realize that it is its tough job. It, it, it doesn't come easy. Uh, you work in part of Africa and the Middle East, and you're, you're working 24-7 for limited pay, and the prices are intense. And I'm not saying uh, we're comparing uh, sort of like we like here, but uh, this is, again, a personal view. Approach needs to probably radically change. Uh, and... Pay is not necessarily the, dri the only driver. Uh, people have to work, people have to support their families. Uh, but I've said before, it is very relative, particularly for our nursing colleagues. Uh, they, are, they are hugely, hugely undervalued, hugely undervalued in terms of the energy and the time and effort that they put in to looking after our population. Yeah, thank you so much, Doctor. So the topic at hand, you know, what we are speaking about is doctors and nurses are getting burnt, burnt out and what we can do. So can you can you share your personal experience uh, on, on this and your view on the matter? In terms of burnout, uh, it is a question of self-analysis, how we look after our, ourselves. Uh, I mean, looking after your own mental health, mental well-being is very important, making sure that you have a balance in your life, you've got good routine, good balanced, healthy eating, healthy living, uh, ensuring you avoid those activities that are potentially harmful to your physical and mental health. Uh, and as, as, a, as a doctor, the, the, our training, the core of our training is that holistic view of the person. And I think as, as if, we, if we implement that on ourselves, uh, we'll be a far healthier, uh, a healthier population, a far healthier profession, uh, thereby only keeping ourselves well, but keeping our patients well. I admit it's not easy under the pressures that we face at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Doctor. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Uh, for now, have a good morning. Take care and peace be upon you.
All the best. Assalamualaikum. Assalamualaikum. So that was Dr. Aziz Hafiz. You know, he was sharing his view on the you know current uh, the strikes that are going on yeah. and the burnout that doctors and nurses are experiencing. Why they are getting low pay. As he mentioned, you know, the pay is relative, but especially in terms of the nurses, they're very undervalued. And, um, you know, in terms of uh, today's day and age, the, the uh, pay isn't kept, uh, hasn't kept up with the amount of workload that has been put on the doctors and the nurses, and the amount of hours they are doing. Especially like the inflation rate that we see today, everything everything has gone gone expensive. So, yes. if, so if the mm. pay rise has not increased, but everything around them has gone yeah. expensive, then uh, we can see it's they they, they will be um, angry about this. Yeah, and they'll be suffering. They will want yeah. strikes and pay mm. rises. So maybe that's. But you why know, as talking. you mentioned, you know, uh, the strikes, uh, you know, essentially, they're not really helpful. They're right. Not, yeah. Yeah. They're not uh, really making a change, and you know, essentially, you're uh, one of the biggest reasons that you're you're disrupting the lives of the patients who you have yeah. essentially sworn to, you know, protect and take care of and look after. Yeah. Uh, so you know, you should, uh, you know, obviously, you need to look after yourself as well. Like yeah. you said, you need to manage your mental health. You need to manage your time properly, mm. and uh, there are, you know, steps that you can take in place to to do this properly. Because everyone is depending <coughs> on the doctor. Of course. Of course. Um, you know, but that's just uh, that's just what the case is, unfortunately. There's some of facts and uh, yes. figures hmm. um, regarding this segment that we're talking about. Yes. Um, the it's mentioned that uh, uh, the, there will be no further offers according to the government, which has already imposed pay increases of six percent hmm. for consultants and six percent plus a lump sum payment of one thousand two hundred fifty for junior physicians. Um, also, the British Medical Association, BMA, yeah. uh, on the other hand, claims that pay has been declining. Hmm. So we are talking about pay <laughs> rise, but uh, they are claiming that it has been declining for several years hmm. and is demanding for full pay, uh, full pay restoration to levels seen in 2008 and 2009. Yeah. So in 2008 and 2009, the levels were seen uh uh, a bit higher than mm. what it is today because it has been decreasing. And the BMA has reported that between 2008 and 2022, the pay for junior <coughs> doctors fell by 26%, mm. with uh, freshly certified physicians earning less than a coffee shop barista. Yeah. So you can just see that even in mm. the in the hospitals yeah. where there are coffee shops, yeah. the, the yeah. coffee shop barista will be yeah. earning more than them. When mm. initially he's the one saving lives, mm. um, it has asked a thirty-five percent increase for younger doctors in order to restore earnings to levels seen in two thousand and eight and two thousand and nine. Yeah, referring to this as pay restoration. Mm. So I do believe we have the next guest online with us this morning, uh, Doctor Talha uh, Sami. Uh, so we will be speaking with him. Yeah, Doctor Talha Sami, how are you? And it's a pleasure. For you to join us today. Asalaamu Alaikum. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you clearly. Can you hear us? Yes, yeah, I can hear you well. It's always a privilege to be on Voice of Islam. Yes, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, doctor, just uh, um, if you can tell us uh, what is going on with the strikes and the doctors and why are doctors and nurses getting burnt out? I think uh, Aziz has seen your previous guest has probably done more justice to this question than I can do. <laughs> I think perhaps what's interesting is that. Uh, the feed is veteran, so he's giving you 
uh, a feeling from the season start uh, years behind in my career since the doctor disease. So it's interesting, a lot of the things that he was saying are things that the current generation of doctors feel, and nurses as well. I think the most symptomatic of that is probably the stress that I think everyone has seen. And I think as time goes on, more and more people are likely to be affected from it with, you know, up to a million appointments or so being cancelled. Mm. And I think ultimately it just comes down to two very simple things that many ways participate on this is workload has increased and that has been empirically proven over the past few years and certainly since COVID. And I think COVID probably disaffected a lot of people. Uh, but then also it comes down to money like most things in life where the cost of living has increased and if the remuneration, remuneration for doctors and nurses has not gone up, they will obviously look for alternative means. Yes. Yeah. Um, and how will this affect the new generation who are seeing the negative effects of the NHS in your point of view? Well, I think you mentioned it earlier that there is an exodus going to you know, Australia, uh, New Zealand, Canada. It's a very popular destination yeah. uh, where people are being paid you know, maybe twice the amount that are being paid here, tax-free in some cases if you go to the Middle East. Mm. Uh, workload will be better. The work day, work life pattern, work life balance will be markedly improved from here. And if you are training doctors five to six years, and then maybe specialization for anywhere between, let's say, five years to ten years, and then you're losing them, mm. then you will have a declining health system. Now, I would just like to compare this with the private sector, and that's about what we value or the value in a society. If in the private sector we are talking about moving the caps of bankers' bonuses, if they, and respectfully, are probably less qualified in terms of hardened degrees and pure scientific endeavor, if they are earning twice what doctors and nurses are earning, certainly maybe triple what nurses are earning, then I think that tells you the values that we hold in society. We hold investment, financial stability, much of the financial market gains. For example, we're seeing the prevalence in the minute. Much of this is being perpetuated by the industry. Similarly, if you look at the pharmaceutical industry, again, number one, number two, number three, perpetuators and propagators of financial um, increase, right? So this tells you what we are valuing as a society. And if you then can compare that, contrast that with what doctors and nurses and you guys earlier were talking about sports stars, it's telling you everything that we need to know. I'll just I'll, I'll add one more thing. I think it's particularly striking if we all remember the champion, uh, the, the, the Super League that was being proposed. Yeah. There were strikes no end two, three years ago now. Yeah. Claps for nurses and doctors, and that was about it. <laughs> so it tells you how we feel. It gives you the indices of society and where we are. Mm. And you know, um, the doctors and nurses that are leaving abroad, you, in your view, is that only due to the pay, or is there any other reasons? Primarily pay. Um, it's also to do with the life balances that are in these. I can tell you numerous things that have gone to New Zealand and Australia. They work four days a week. 
the work-life balance is better, they get paid more. If you go to the Middle East, it's tax-free. Uh, work-life balance is better. So for a lot of people, that's win-win, isn't it? Hmm. And then do you think the strikes um, are, uh, are working, essentially? Is it having, having any effect? Well, that's the question, isn't it? Um, I, it's hard to give you a, a reasonable answer to that. Certainly so far, they have not worked, and it's just irritated and angered everyone. Mm. Will it work in the future? It's possible. It sounds like the government is slowly beginning to engage with it. I think I read a statistic that said if all the money lost covering the strike was given to the doctors and nurses, then all the thing would have been covered. And has it affected you, if you want to share your personal view on this? Well, I think, you know, we've all found the difficult. The past couple of years definitely have, I think, signaled an increased intensity of workload. I think perhaps, you know, it's provoked anxiety in all of us to varying disease. And I think... All we can really do is hold your own. We don't have much more choice than to do other than what we're doing. For many of us, relocation is not really a, a viable option. Uh, so we sit on the sidelines and we watch them. Thoughts. Thank you for your thoughts, uh, Dr. Talasami. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That was uh, a practicing doctor and author, Talasami, who is a frequent contributor to medical affairs in the media. And he did provide us with some valuable information and some deep insight into this uh, matter of nurses and doctors going on strike. We do have a brief audio clip uh, of uh, His Hol- <coughs> Holiness the Fourth, um, the, the the current Caliph of the MDM Muslim Community, um, uh, in regards to this. So let's listen to that one. In chapter three, verse hundred and eleven, Allah the Almighty has stated that a Muslim is he who enjoys what is good and forbids evil. Here the Quran explains that true Muslims are people who promote goodness, stay away from evil and injustice, and encourage others to do good deeds as well. Only a person who has a sincere love for humankind and feels the anguish of God's creation can be caring and sympathetic in the way the Quran desires. Such profound love for humanity is only possible if your heart is pure and free from malice and selfishness. So that was uh, His Holiness, Hazrat uh, Mirza Masroor Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, uh, speaking uh, in regards to, you know, the importance of helping others and uh, the importance of serving others and serving mankind. The, Quran, the Holy Quran, you know, the Holy Book of the Muslims, also instructs Muslims to be benevolent and to treat anyone under their supervision with love, patience and affection. For example, if a Muslim has a subordinate at work, they should treat them with kindness and generosity. A golden principle given by the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is that a true Muslim should like for others what he likes for himself. The Holy Quran has also stated that... Uh, <clears throat> miserly and ungenerous attitudes towards spending wealth are not liked by Allah and are a means of darkening a person's soul. 
In chapter 51 verse 20 of the Holy Quran it states that the hallmark of a true Muslim is that he should care for all of God's creation and should comfort and support those in need whether they seek their help or not. So we should try our best to support the doctors and nurses. And His Holiness has said on another occasion that until a person attains inner peace, their material comfort, comforts are worthless. Uh, inner peace is essential to a good life and is part of the work balance. The excessive work of doctors and nurses will dominate their lives and prevent them from reaching a healthy balance. And the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that the nation, that the leader of a nation is in fact its servant. And, you know, just before we wrap this up and we do go for a, uh, the news break and then after that we'll be moving on to our second segment, which is Knife Crime is on the Rise. Uh, just like to end on a quote of the promised Messiah, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, the founder of the MDM Muslim community, he said that to be in the service of the nation is a sign of being who is a leader. The leaders of our nation should take action in serving its people by ensuring that those who work for the healthcare system are well taken care of. So, you know, this just goes to show that the true teachings of Islam are, you know, um, that uh, we should look after our um you know our doctors and nurses and mm. you know we should provide for them properly you know what they're asking for is uh, isn't essentially you know something outrageous they're asking for due rights mm. and you know uh, they should be given their due rights because they are uh, essential they are essential members of society and without them society could not function properly yeah. right uh, so dear listeners we uh, please do join us after a very short break of the eight o'clock news and don't go anywhere you are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, in the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Welcome back to The Breakfast Show, dear listeners. So the second uh, segment that we do have on, uh, on, on with us is that knife crime is on the rise. A uh, martial arts man uh, stabbed his partner in London. There have been various accounts of knife uh, knife crimes recently and what can we do to tackle it? <coughs> so a martial arts enthusiast has been jailed for life for stabbing his partner to death before holding captive a friend he believed to be her lover. Jason Bell, 42, attacked Nicole Hurley, 37, with at least two knives at their home in Primrose Hill, northwest London, in the early hours of 10th October 2021. Afterwards, Bell arrived at his friend's house with a large army-style knife, accused him of sleeping with Hurley and used a friend's van to drive through a police tape before checking himself into mental health care. Um, on Thursday, the Old Bailey judge uh, Alexia, uh, Alexia Duran sentenced Bell to life imprisonment with a maximum of term of 22 years and disqualified him from driving for 36 months upon release. Um, and Hurley had begun uh, her relationship with Bell when she was a teenager and it was described by prosecutor uh, Michelle Nelson KC as difficult and volatile and toxic. Bell, who trained in martial arts club, would explode and punch and kick Hurley. You know, this is, uh, <clears throat> this is just one of, the, one of the many stories, one of the many, uh, you know, uh, heart-wrenching stories that we do get to hear, uh, which occurs on a, you know, a regular basis, essentially. Um, knife crime is very prevalent in the uh, United Kingdom and unfortunately 
uh, unfortunately, you know, this is the case of what is happening around the UK. And, you know, there's a, there are many gang-related uh, violence as well in terms of knife crime. Many young children, you know, they, they see their olders um, holding knives, carrying knives, and they think, you know, it is like... Um, it's a good thing, essentially. It's, it's, it's basically glorified. It's, yeah. If you don't have a knife on you, uh, especially, you know, in the in the gang communities, right? Uh, if you don't have a knife on you, it is uh, seen as if you are you are you are weak yeah. or you are not part of them. Essentially, yeah. essentially not cool enough. Yeah, not cool That's enough. The term. And uh, you know, we see many young children at ages of twelve, thirteen, fourteen uh, committing stabbings yeah. or being the victim of stabbings and you know they they end up losing their lives and it you yeah. know it hurts not only their loved ones but you know it's just it's it's an endless cycle yeah. and uh, you know something does need to be uh, done about this i think the main reason it is like this is because of the role models that the younger youth have in their communities <coughs> which uh, are not uh, teaching them the right way to live that's why in, in Islam, the only role model that we essentially have is our Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, who teaches us the right way to live and the right way to go about our life. <coughs> so um, I think... Most definitely, most definitely. Uh, just some, uh, you know, uh, some recent uh, statistics. In 2022 to 2023, there were around 50... 1,500 offences involving a sharp instrument in England and Wales, excluding Devon and Cornwall. This was 4.7% higher than in 2021 to 2022, but 7% lower in 2019 to 2020. Uh, 5% increase in knife crime in England and Wales in the last 12 months, and 75% uh, increase in knife crime in England and Wales in 2022 compared to March 2013. Yes, we do have our first caller <coughs> on the show uh, regarding this segment, um, Sarah Haylock. Um, pleasure to speak to you today, Sarah. Hello, thank you for having me on the show. Thank you. Um, it's a pleasure for us to have you. Um, why do you think knife crimes, particularly those involving youths, are on the rise every year? Um, so this is a really important question and a really important topic at the moment. And as you've already highlighted some of the data, I mean, looking at the latest year, there's been over 50,000 offences for England and Wales. And excluding the pandemic due to lockdown restrictions, knife crime has increased each year since around 2014. So this problem's been around for a while and it definitely isn't going away. Um, and it's important to answer, it's extremely difficult. It's unlikely there is one reason why knife crime is on the rise and all of the risk factors interact with each other. Um, however, to shed some light on this topic, I think we need to talk about two key things. So the first one is mental health and the second one is the current economic deprivation and employment levels. Okay. So both of these have been worsening for young people um, since the pandemic in England and Wales. And a huge research on poor mental health as a trajectory into violence for young people. So looking at 2022, one in six, seven to 16-year-olds have a mental health uh, disorder and one in four 17 to 19-year-olds have a mental health disorder. And this has been increasing since the pandemic. Um, and it's shown that possibly this 
low self-esteem, anxiety and fear can increase the vulnerability of young people. And this can push them to find that sense of security and projection elsewhere. Um, and looking at unemployment and economic deprivation, this can lead to violence for a number of reasons. So we found that lack of opportunities can force young people into self-destructive behaviour. Um, and also economic deprivation can lead to an unstable environment in the community. So there can be low social cohesion or increase other types of crime. And we've heard from young people in outreach programs and workshops that protection and improving security is one of the main reasons for weapon carrying. So I think it's the combination of lessening mental health and unemployment tools, uh, which is driving the recent change in knife crime. As, as you mentioned, that um, protection is one of the main reasons for these younger people to carry a knife. Is that the only reason why they get involved um, into knife crime? And what are also the risk factors? Um, I think from directly speaking to young people, that's the, the key reason that I've heard. And I've also seen um, charities talk about this as well. Um, but there are also a, a number of risk factors. Um, I first just want to explain what a risk factor is. So a risk factor is a characteristic that's linked to a negative outcome. So in this, case, in this case, the outcome is knife crime. And a protective factor kind of counteracts this. So it's important to flag that not everyone who shows these characteristics, so for example, not everyone who has poor mental health or is unemployed will engage in violence. It just increases the chance of you being involved in violence. Um, so for youth violence, the risk factors are, there's a range of them and they're all interconnected. And another significant one is adverse childhood experiences. So this is where a child has experienced a traumatic event before the age of 18. Um, and this can be neglect, abuse or incarceration. And we found that they're more, in, more, li more likely to engage in life crime. And this is because adverse childhood experiences lead to poor mental health and again kind of increase that vulnerability they experience. Mm -hmm. um, and this kind of links back to that protection. You know, if you can't find stability within your home or in your community, you might find um, aggressive behaviour or weapons kind of more accessible for you to kind of reduce that sense of vulnerability. Mm. Yeah. And uh, how important do you think um, family support or the society plays a role in supporting someone who has uh, initially been found or people have realised that they are now carrying a knife around with them? Does that play a um, factor? Yeah, I think... So strong parental attachment is actually a protective factor for a knife crime mm. and that contributes to having that safe environment at home. So it's really, like, stability is extremely important for adolescents and each risk factor kind of erodes that sense of security. So whether it's your mental health, the, the, the poor social cohesion. So if you're counteracting that with, you know, having outreach programs to rebuild the community, supporting parents and supporting children in the home, then you're, again, adding back to that sense of security and making them feel less vulnerable. And then they don't need to lead weapons to defend themselves. Um, and <clears throat> how do you think the government, as you mentioned, how society, how parents, how family can help, how do you think, how do you think the government uh, could, what, what they could do to try address this problem? Yeah, so there currently are existing strategies which are government-led. And I think there was around 
250 million pounds um, funded to prevent serious violence in England and Wales. It is great to see the government recognising that there is an issue. But to improve this approach, um, I think any policy needs to be driven by public health and it needs to target areas affected most. So we've seen an increase in knife crime, but different areas across England and Wales have seen a higher increase. So in London, there was around a 16% increase in knife crime since the previous year. Um, mm. It's also important to act preventatively. So you kind of want to stop the vicious cycle of someone um, carrying a weapon and then using the weapon and being a victim of crime and then reusing that weapon. And mm -hmm. reoffending rates are higher with juveniles compared to adults. So it's really important to stop before they start carrying weapons or using weapons. Um, I think there also needs to be a lot more research. So majority of research, including my own, occurred pre-pandemic mm -hmm. and the nature of serious violence is changing. So we've seen an increase in robbery include, um, involving weapons, mm. a decrease in assault, um, which is just using weapons alone. I think that's linked to unemployment and the lack of opportunities. Mm. You know, people are going to kind of extremes to be able to survive right now. Mm. Yeah. Um, sorry, and just the last one, I think it's um, <laughs> the key thing is to work with local organisations and speak to young people directly. That's how you define the problem and you define, um, kind of understand it, design solutions to actually start to change this behaviour. Mm. Um, and we were discussing before regarding having uh, role models in the society and obviously the youth, what they see, they tend to do. Do you think that plays a factor as in them seeing others uh, older than them carrying knives around so they essentially start doing the same? Yeah, I can. I completely agree with that. I think also seeing other people carry weapons kind of increases that it's it's kind of the norm now to carry weapons. And mm. we've seen peer influence also it can be a risk factor and protective factor. So if you have social peers involved in crime or potentially gangs, you're more likely to um, to join those. But also if you have peers and friends who aren't involved in crime and um you know involved in other community mm. or activities and you're more likely to join as well so that's a really important thing to to look at yeah. and have you done as have you you have done research on this topic what other useful insights did you discover when you have when you had carried out a systematic review on this youth violence yes yeah, so i think something else that's really important is that people of ethnic minorities are hugely overrepresented in the media and also within um, weapon-related crime figures. So the Home Office recently published the disparities between stop-and-searches and those who identify as um, white, they, were, they had a rate of stop-and-search of only 5.6% and compared to um, people who identify as black, this was 27.2%. And what we found in my research is there was not a strong relationship between ethnicity and youth violence when you control for other risk factors such as socio-economic status. Mm. And what this means is that individuals in the same economic group, their ethnicity does not change how likely they are to be involved involved in youth violence. So it has so the problem sorry, go on. So it has nothing to do with the background and ethnicity that they are from. Oh, so it's problem here is 
more people from ethnic minorities are overrepresented in groups with their socioeconomic status. And I think this often leads to discrimination. Um, and funnily enough, discrimination is also found to be a risk factor for violence, and it can lead to distrust in your authority and also in your community. And we found with interviews, ex-gang members, <coughs> that they explained that stereotypes and the prejudice they experience has pushed them towards violence. So the Home Office figures have shown that disparities are reducing, but they still do exist. And this is extremely important to tackle when we're trying to reduce knife crime. Mm. Yep. Um, thank you very much, uh, Sarah, for your valuable information. And I'm sure the our listeners um, valued from whatever you informed us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, so that, yep. that was Sarah Haylock, who is a public health analyst. Um, and she has published research in collaboration with Imperial College London <clears throat> on the risk factors linked to youth violence. And she did give us some very um, valuable insight yeah. on this research that she had. You know, I think one of the uh, one of the main reasons, another like big reason, is that you know um, the music yeah, industry, exactly the music industry here in the UK, the the drill genre, the grime genre. You know they heavily, uh, you know they um, heavily glorify glorify stabbing, not not killings. just uh, like owning knives, mm. but you know like um, you know like committing crimes, exactly. committing knife crimes, mm. and uh, you know um, stabbings as well. Exactly. And obviously, when the youth are young, yeah. they're not mature. They're yeah. going to listen to this, exactly. and they're going to be affected mm. by this yeah. because they seem it to be cool and, and everyone around peer them, pressure is a very big thing very well. big thing. very big thing in schools everyone's been through yeah. it they know yeah. you will know mm. how <laughs> peer pressure gets to you no and you end up being yeah. like the company mm. that you have mm. because you know uh essentially um just just before we speak to our next guest of the line i just want to mention that you know essentially when you see some like a, a group of people you know and you're you're the odd one out you try and stay on the right path, but you know they they might bully you, or you might just end up being tired of the bullying. Exactly. So that can help affect your mental health, and then you b going from a victim, you become the oppressor. Yeah, exactly. That's why in Islam, you know, Islam teaches us not only to help the oppressed, but the oppressor as well. Exactly. So we do justice. have online with us our next guest uh, of the morning, Bruce uh, Holder, uh, who is the founder uh, of the charity Fighting Knife Crime London which in June 2021 launched a broad-based online uh, uh, resource for all young people in Greater London and those wishing to help them. Good morning, peace be upon you, and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning, how are you? Uh, very well, I hope you're doing well as well. I, I hope I pronounced your name properly. Uh, yes, yeah. hold on, hold yes, on. Yeah. Yes. Uh, just for our listeners out there, what, what is the main aim of the organisation? The main aim of the organisation is to share as many resources as possible <laughs> across the greater London area yeah. to, as you summarised it, to help young people out of the problems that they face, uh, to give them the power to change their lives yeah. uh, and to help those who wish to guide them, their carers, their parents or, or anyone else who, who wants to find a solution to the problems that they face. Um, the title of the organization, Fighting Knife Crime London, is a little misleading in that sense. Hmm. Obviously, we want to stop knife crime, yeah. but you can only stop that by giving 
kids the chance to succeed in life, to do well hmm. and to respect the communities that they live in. Definitely, definitely. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, what are the steps that your organisation takes to get to achieve its aims? Well, as I say, what we do is provide the information, every kind of information yeah. uh, that you can possibly think of. But uh, society as a whole needs to come together on this. Hmm. Every one of us has a responsibility. Definitely. It's not just the police. It's not just politicians. Hmm. Uh, young people are not to blame very often for the terrible circumstances in which they find themselves. But who is to blame? It's the rest of us, because hmm. we need to do what we can to make our communities better places than they are. Yeah. Politicians have spoken for years about leveling up. Hmm. But they don't concentrate on these really poor communities where most of these knife crime murders occur. They're the ones, they're the places that really need our attention. They're the young people that really need to be helped in the situation. It'll help us all if we do that. Yeah, definitely. But why do you think that knife crime is on the rise? Well, it is on the rise. Um, uh, across the country as yeah. a whole. Yeah. And indeed, um, until la March last year, we had the highest number of deaths by night hmm. since 1946. Yeah. I, I think society is much more divided. It's much more driven than it was some years ago. We have social media, which carries some uh, malign influence as well as benign influence. Uh, and that's not helping either. Yeah. And young people, frankly, feel they have nowhere to go. They have no jobs available to mm. them. They've given up on education. They've been excluded from school, many of them. And most of those kids that are excluded to school from school are the ones that end up in gangs. Yeah. They're the ones that end up in prison. Mm. And that's such a shame. Why do we abandon them at that level? Kids go wrong during their teenage years. It's been happening since time immemorial. Yeah. But rather than abandon them and send them to an alternative provision school, hmm. which they may not even bother to attend, why don't we wrap our arms around them and bring them perhaps forward a bit and, yeah. and help them, give them uh, more concentrated time than they get at the moment? Hmm. Definitely, definitely. I think that is the correct approach. Um, and what do you think the general public um, and the government could do more to address the knife problem, knife crime well, problem? Well, it, it is right to identify that it's a, a two-pronged thing. Yeah. Um, government have a responsibility to put policies in place yeah. to uh, make sure that our communities are uh, uh, brought to life in a way that uh, is more suitable for a, a civilised country in the 21st century. That's their main task. It, it, among the communities, it's the job of every one of us. It's the job of the businesses who get their livelihood from the communities that they serve to give something back to their communities, to help young people, to employ young people who might otherwise go off the rails, to uh, make our streets clean, healthy places to live where we can walk safely at night and during the day without fear of attack. Hmm. These things are actually achievable. They have been achieved in many countries. Our country, for some reason, happens to be about the worst at the moment. Uh, and really, that has to change. And it's not just the responsibility of the people we tend to blame. We tend to blame the young people. We tend to blame the police. We tend to blame government without ever turning inwards and asking, well, what am I, what am I doing? 
yeah. to uh, help this situation. Where am I offering my help? There is something, there's a talent in all of us, and hmm. all of us can contribute something to this change. Um, could, 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 if you don't mind, could you share some like personal anecdote or story in regards to you know where you've seen success um, in in some of your cases without naming any names? We, it, it's very difficult for me to do that because although I mean I do uh, occasionally talk one to one with young people who are in trouble, yeah, um, I certainly can't really share that yeah. uh, conversation. But um, what we can't do is see what happens when someone visits our website. Hmm. We can see the, the many thousands of people that drop into our website and move from one area to another. We can measure all that. Yeah. But when they find what they want, which is the purpose of the website, when they find it, they click on that uh, particular link, hmm. and then they leave us. They go to the place they want to be. Uh, and what happens then, I don't know. Yeah. Um, all I do know it is that those that do use us, hmm. including the police, are extremely grateful to have this opportunity and this service available to them, which covers so many areas. It's a, yeah. a thoughtful place as well. We have a research database. We have serious evidence-based articles hmm. about the kind of things that kids can do yeah. to help their lives. Definitely. And so there's so much information there. Definitely. And uh, as Bruce, you mentioned, um, it mentions that you've worked <coughs> overseas also. Um, yes. What do you think the differences of uh, uh, knife crime here and in some of the countries that you've worked? And if the other countries are having more success, what steps are they taking? Well, I haven't really made a, a study of what particular steps are made in other countries. All, all I know is that um, every country is different. Every country's faith background is different. Every country's traditions are different. And frankly, um, policing in some countries is very different. I'm not going to suggest for a minute that our police should uh, uh, be uh, more brutal than some nations, but I'm quite sure that in some countries you don't have knife crime because uh, if you do, you're likely to end up dead um, mm. at the wrong kind of hands. But that's, that's not a comparator. I, I, I find it very difficult to make a comparison. We're a country with a very diverse community indeed. Uh, and each particular city in this country has got its own uh, uh, demographic problems. Um, if you go to the north of England, you'll find the gangs are largely white. If you come down to London, uh, mostly black. So you can't make any hard and fast rules about these things. Mm. Uh, we have to look closely at the pockets in our little communities where these problems are occurring and concentrate on them. We've got much better uh, analytics, much better statistics, which mm. allow us now to concentrate on these areas rather than a whole borough. We mm. can say, well, that street, that street, or that uh, council estate, are the areas where we're having most problems. So that's where you concentrate your energies. We waste so, so much money uh, doing broad-based schemes to solve these things rather than concentrating on particular areas. And in your experience, um, would you, um, is there more knife crime in the north or the south? Well, in fact, in West Midlands uh, and Cleveland, they have a higher rate of knife crime than we have in London. That doesn't mean more offences, because the 
population of London is so much greater. Yeah. I think it works out at about 8,000 um, knife crimes a year in West Midlands and something like 12,000 in London. I'm not sure of the precise mm. figures, but that gives you an idea. But per head mm. uh, uh, of the population, it's greater in Cleveland and the West Midlands. Mm. And as uh, we, we spoke earlier also, do you think role models and the society plays a big role? I think absolutely they do. Um, the trouble is with gangs, for example, the role models are the gang leaders. Uh, we need these kids to have different role models, don't we? These yeah. are not the people that anyone should be looking up to. Um, but that's what happens, unfortunately, because these kids have, been, have fallen into the gap where the rest of us have rather ignored their plight and uh, ignored uh, uh, their lives. Uh, mm. As I said um, in a speech I gave recently, the, mm. these kids are the seed corn of the next generation and they form the character of the next generation. Mm. We must help them. Mm. We have to uh, stop this, these lives being uh, ended quite needlessly. And I think it is preventable. But so much more needs to be done. We need to come together much more each one of us needs to make a contribution, and we will get it changed. We've all got to make a noise, real noise. And I'd be grateful for you relying on this program to uh, say what I feel uh, most passionately about. Mm. Yes, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Um, th th thank you for joining us today, Bruce Holder, and we really enjoyed your company and your information that you provided us from your experience. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. Um, dear listeners, that was Bruce Holder, who is the founder of the charity Fighting Knife Crime. <clears throat> and he described and <clears throat> gave us very valuable information from the experience that he's had. Yeah. So, you know, you know I was looking at, um, I was looking at, uh, you know, uh, I saw one article. I'm not exactly sure of the wording, but it, it, it went something like this, that um, the mental health of like today's students is that of mental patients in the 1960s. Yeah. The current state of their mental health. Yeah, I think I've read that. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, even if it's not true, but like, there's, there must be some truth to it. Yeah. Uh, so, if we look at it proportionately, we just have to, um, you know, we have to uh, see that what is happening in today's society. I and why the... is the mental health so bad of mm. current, um, you know, young individuals? Yeah, I think it could be could due to the advancements of mm. today's age as well yeah. because um um a couple of centuries back mm. there, there was, was no like social media social media, social media plays a very, a very big, big role, role yeah. in in mental health especially if you're scrolling <clears throat> all day on social mm. media and you're yeah. seeing others doing some of the things yeah. that you desire to do and yeah. you can't do mm. then it does play a role in most definitely um, that's why you know one of the um segments we discussed a few uh, few, um, a few months back uh, was that you know China was banning celebrities from showing off too much exactly. uh, uh, of their wealth mm. on social media yeah. because it's it's a negative influence yeah. essentially it affects them because they are you know influencers mm. and you know you can't always stop your children from looking at this stuff yeah. you can only guide them yeah. uh, you know there will be times where they will you know you can't st even if you say yeah, you you're going to get a phone at the age of 15 or whatever mm. the age of mm. 18 then the prayer pressure yeah. comes in that we were yeah. speaking about earlier as well yeah exactly because they see everyone else with everyone their else with their phones and if you put too much pressure on them then and if you you know stop them too much from mm. one thing then they will find ways to do yeah, it yeah. in secrecy it will have a negative effect yeah. on that yeah so everything islam is a religion of moderation yeah 
And, you know, the, the motto of the um, MD Muslim youth community is that, you know, nation cannot be reformed without first reforming its youth. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and these definitely. were the words of the second caliph, the promised yeah. reformer. Uh, and, uh, you know, these are words to live by, essentially. Essentially, yeah. Uh, we do have a brief uh, audio clip in regards to knife crime, so let's listen to that. According to the newspaper reports, fear and respect of the law which existed some decades ago seems to be diminishing in Western countries as well. Knife crime on the streets is rising. Such problems are sometimes attributed to immigrants in the Western world. But let it be very clear that this rise is due to being far removed from God and also due to the greed and non-fulfillment of one's desires. If we ponder over this, we will realize that this is the real cause of this restlessness. You know, as His Holiness said that, you know, we are, um, is the, the real cause of this is that, you know, we are striving, we are going away from the correct path. Yeah. Uh, the path of Allah the Almighty. Mm. Until uh, we don't recognize our Creator, yeah. nothing can be done for improving this world. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, that is the case, that is what we are seeing. Mm happening in today's day and age you know um even you know you look at the muslim countries of uh, uh of the world today you know they mm, the, the 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 state that they are yeah, in the plight tomorrow, that they yeah. are in you know it's, it's not as it was you know centuries ago yeah. um at the height of the you know the golden age of islam essentially uh, so we do have online with us our last guest of the morning matt clement who's a criminologist teaching at royal holloway university of london he has previously worked as a mentor with young offenders, a school teacher, and a guidance counselor. He has written A People's History of Riots, Protests, and the Law, and uh, recently edited No Justice, No Police The Politics of Protest and Social Change. Good morning, peace be upon you, and a welcome to the breakfast show. Oh, hello there. It's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, okay. Just, uh, you know, in this day and age, uh, with immediate access to social media and other resources, why do you think knife crime is on the rise and can it potentially be related to social media influences? Well, I think social media can play a part. So it's obviously the way that so many um, young people above all do communicate with one another. Yeah. Um, and, and clearly it's possible that the kind of the emotional temperature can be raised before people even kind of come into contact with one another hmm. through through social media in the fairly obvious ways that we can all imagine. So, So I think it, it can play a role. I think it's important to recognise, though, that um, technology doesn't explain the rise yeah. in knife crime. Yeah. There's always these different tools, just as yeah. I guess, you know, if you look historically, people had different types of knives than the ones they use now. So yeah. uh, the technology is always changing. And, of course, it's arguable as well about very, very hard for us as criminologists to actually understand whether crime is rising or falling in areas like this, you know? I mean, people have done surveys on things like hospital admissions. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, not all knife crime gets reported to the police, as you can imagine, for various reasons. So yeah. the official stats don't tell us. Hospital admissions don't show us um, all the, you know, a, a rise necessarily. Yeah. Um, but then, of course, there might be people who didn't get to hospital. So that, that's another element as well. Hmm. I think we, we're fairly clear that, that you know, the using or ca knife carrying has increased, but it, it's quite hard to have a definitive figure on the, on actual incidents of, of stabbings going up. Yeah. 
what makes younger people particularly more likely to commit knife crimes or carry knives? Yeah, well, I think it's it's often to do with with peer groups and uh, and feeling like you need them for self protection. Uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of this is to do with socialization as well. I think. I mean, I, I've written a couple of articles about this from when I was working, particularly with young people caught up in the youth offending system for the youth offending teams. That was in Bristol hmm. a few years ago. But but what you tended to find there was that there was a very high percentage of um, young people who were involved in these violent offences who had been out of school, yeah. um, excluded from school officially or unofficially. And uh, clearly that means that they're, they're, not, they're not so good at managing their anger. A lot of the, at school, we learn how to kind of deal with, you know, challenges and social exchanges with, with people the same age as us. We learn how to deal with it. We kind of learn that off each other. Hmm. And, and, and that's probably why most people can deal with it. And, you know, and if someone says something rude about your mother, you'll be ready with a, an ex, with a joke back to say back to them. You won't get really angry and want to attack them. Yeah. But some of these young people I work with, you know, they, they, they couldn't manage their anger. Hmm. And I think partly that's because they, they weren't in school. You know, they were out playing. They were playing on their on um, computer games all night, getting up, hanging around on the streets. Only people that they kind of had peer group contact with were maybe adults who had time on their hands in the streets. Some of whom might have been up involved in criminal activities. Yeah. So all these things kind of dragged those people into a kind of a life world where it seemed more normal to be carrying a knife and to be thinking about protecting yourself. Quite a different world from like you know their peers are in school dealing with their peers all the time and, and having sort of more what you think of as more normal interaction. So it's a yeah. different world they sometimes find themselves in this group, I think. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what, what can we do to prevent the younger generation from turning to knife crime? Well, I think there's an awful lot as well that can be blamed on um, government and um, cutbacks. You know, yeah. certainly when you look at people living in poorer areas, they often say, you know, when I was younger in this car block, there would be a youth club nearby mm. or there'd be, a, there'd be a caretaker in the block. Yeah. Uh, and so there were, there'd be a park keeper in the park. There were certain officials, certain adults mm. who these young people would be familiar with. And very often, they'll say, there's no one about. There's no one sort of monitoring me, not looking out for me. And that can actually be quite a frightening thing. Yeah. That can often be why they feel alienated. Who's going who's gonna to... There's no one to look out for me if I was to be threatened. Yeah. That's often why they think I'd better carry something. Hmm. Uh, so it, 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 the environment <laughs> we're creating with these cutbacks and, and austerity is certainly making things yeah. uh, worse as well. Um, hmm. In terms of what parents can do, I think you know a lot of it is down to listening, to be honest. If, if you're listening, uh, then you have to be able to find ways to give um, the person you're talking to enough room to open mm. up about how they're feeling, and you know, and not necessarily starting with "Have you been carrying a knife?" I don't want to carry a knife, but much more kind of trying to find out what their state of mind is, uh, give them room to express their hopes and fears about things. And I think in that context, you know, that's how you find out whether people are thinking about using things like this. I mean, obviously, some kids will just keep it, keep it different parents anyhow and that's difficult but you have to find those rooms to have those conversations and actually listen to what they say and try and pick up the signals but obviously there are lots of factors 
to do with the cost of living crisis, to do with austerity, to do with feeling like maybe there's, there's less of a certain future for them than there have been for previous generations, which are all pressures building up on young people today that can make them have a very defensive and scared attitude. And that's, that's sometimes where this, where this carrying and knife carrying comes from. Yeah, definitely. Um, just before we let you go, what, what other useful insights have you discovered during your research? Well, I think that, that's what we felt overall. Is we, I actually called it um, a decivilizing process. So what I was arguing is that, uh, you know, it's this lack of the social interaction, normal social interactions, that um, can put young people in, if you like, in a in a, a more a different kind of life world, a different kind of day to day experience where violence seems more normal. Yeah. And you know, if you live in a if you live in an environment where where violence seems normal, as we've seen in other parts of the world at the moment, then clearly you feel like you have to defend yourself and that might mean taking extreme measures. So you get yourself into a mentality hmm. uh which can, you know, which is a combat mentality uh, and a defensive mentality and all those words kind of go with um becoming equipped in some way and uh you know, we as a society need to try and find ways to, um, you know, this is not a natural state for adolescents to be in, I would argue. Um, yeah. But if we're not if we're not providing them with the education, with the facilities that allow them to kind of experience those kind of important transitional years more normally, then, uh, then that's what's going to happen. I mean, you know, I don't think it helps that we're demonising gangs as well. What we should be looking at saying it's perfectly natural for young people to be um, grouping together in different ways, but let's let's look what we as a society can do to find productive things for those groups of people to be doing and opportunities for them to be taking part in. Because if we do, uh, that makes a difference. Yeah, you know? I mean, often you'll sort of see, you know, in your West Side Story type scenarios, you'll 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 see kind of um, young um, young people who are involved potentially in violence, kind of. Sort of being sarcastic about youth clubs and things, but actually, that they can only be sarcastic if it's there. Yeah, and then and maybe then they will go. Um, and in fact, if you don't provide them hmm. and activities like that, then unfortunately, you know, you're just you're, we are just abandoning all society is just neglecting those young people hmm. and not really leaving them anywhere else to go. So no. I, I think those are the factors that are more, you know, are more causing the violence. Than, hmm. The, the technology sometimes holds a mirror up to it. You know, the, the social media or the sort of music that people listen to sometimes it has a quite a violent content and that can make you feel like that is the cause of the violence. But actually, that's just a mirror yeah. to the violent world that we're all living in. Mm. Um, so I don't think just changing, just smashing the mirror mm. changes the problem. It's more about changing the mm. world and then, then things won't look so ugly and, and people won't feel like that's their only choice. Yeah. Definitely. And as you've worked with, uh, you've been a mentor with young offenders. Yeah. Um, what do you think um, you have experienced as in, is it an ethnic background or a single uh, family home that's more likely for a child to carry a knife or commit a knife crime? Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't highlight either of those factors. I mean, it used to be the case that, you know, in, in criminology, sociology, we, we thought things like, um, in the past, we thought maybe the single parent issue, for example, mm. did hold kids back or didn't have development. But I'm not sure that's the case now because that model of a, of a one parent setup that young people grow up in has become so normalized now in our society. 
there are so many young people who grow up in that structure that don't have problems that I don't think we can attribute it to to that. And, and certainly um, we can't attribute to um, anything to do with ethnicity because, you know, if you went back to the 1930s, you'd be looking at the... Um, the night gangs in Glasgow, for example, they'd all be kind of white Scottish class would have been the key would have been the key factor. I mean, I think class is a key factor. I think race, you know, ethnicity can become an issue in terms of like gang membership, how people make choices about gang membership. But I think when you're talking about what's like corporate violence, it's more about class and uh, those kind of factors than uh, ethnicity, and certainly not family structure thank you so much for joining us uh, this morning Matt it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you okay um, we'd love to have you on another, another time as well uh, yeah, for now um, yeah have a good morning and take care alright All right. thank you thank Cheers. you bye bye so that was uh, you know Matt Clement uh, mm. who is a criminologist teaching at Royal Holloway mm. University of London and you know he had some really interesting insights mm. and useful information I think all the guests that we spoke yeah. to there's one thing that did stand out is that having a role model having a society having <coughs> keeping a company yeah. which you keep has a mm. Uh, plays a really big role in, yeah. um, and even in the Quran it says Kunuma Sadiqin that yeah. be with the truthful, keep mm. a righteous company, mm. so that you can yourself become righteous. Yeah. That's why I said you know a lot of people that have been expelled from school, they are where, where as in school you know you have a you have a decent atmosphere. Yeah. You've got teachers that yeah. are, you know your mentors looking after you. You've got your friends. Um, but you know, once you get out of that, yeah. then you're seeking for that, yeah, right? Exactly. And the only place that you can find that is within, essentially, you know, uh, going down the wrong path, yeah. or within gangs, or within or having orders. other other <coughs> excluded people yeah. who are outside yeah. with yeah. you. Yeah. So yeah, it does play a big role. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. Uh, what What is Islam uh, Islam's teachings in regards to this? Islam, um, Hazur, uh, our caliph, has stated that those who are truly inclined towards the faith do not lust after material possessions. Mm. Remember, you are the people who are to guide the world rather than chasing after wealth and usurping uh, the rights of one another and perpetrating injustices or mm. stealing or resorting to violence and creating disorder on the streets and instigating uprisings against governments in countries. Mm. You should create contentment within yourself. That's uh, uh, the advice that um, our current caliph, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmad, has uh, given to the youth of our community. Mm. Furthermore, the promised Messiah, uh, the founder of the community, has encouraged <coughs> men to deal <coughs> justly with their wives and set his own example. He exhorted, except for indecency, all instances of women's rudeness and harshness should be tolerated. I consider it to be exceptionally shameful that a man should fight against a woman. God has made us men and this is actually a supreme blessing upon us. Our gratitude for this blessing lies in dealing pleasantly and gently with women. So again, the promised Messiah has um, explained the family home that you should have to create a better society, to create a better environment for your kids, for your love, uh, love beings, and um, so they can always stay on the right path. Um, it's also mentioned, as we've mentioned earlier on the show, that whosoever killed a person, unless it be 
for killing a person or for creating disorder in the land, it shall be as if he killed all mankind. And whoso gave life to one, it shall be as if he had given life to all mankind. Yeah. The Prophet Sussaya further, you know, he explained that an article that incident uh, incident of this occurred lately here in Qadian on the 20th of November last um, a European came here just at the time uh, a number of my followers had assembled together and the conversation was upon religious subject the traveler stood apart from the assembly assembly and was addressed in polite words it appeared that he was apprehensive he stated that uh, he had seen many muhammadans who had committed atrocities <clears throat> excuse me who had committed atrocious deeds uh, of murder against christians he mentioned several specific instances in which such cruelty had been shown it was then explained to him that this the ahmadiyya sect of islam abhorred such doctrines and hated their adherents such doctrines and hated their uh, their adherents it had um, you know it had set before itself the noble object of uproot- uprooting this evil upon this he felt satisfied and stayed here for one more night you know this just goes to show that you know the true teachings of islam is completely against violence mm. whenever there is violence you know islam completely uh, you know rejects it completely condemns it yeah and it states uh, you know in the holy quran that o ye who believe be steadfast in the cause of allah bearing witness in equity and let not a people's enmity incite you to act otherwise than with justice be always just that is nearer to righteousness and fear allah surely allah is aware of what you do um <clears throat> and uh, you know it also says that uh, uh, in another place that create not disorder in the earth after it has been set in order this is better for you if you are believers and uh, you know his holiness stated that throughout his life the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him condemned all forms of wa- uh, warfare violence and injustice and that is you know essentially the true teaching of islam yeah so dear listeners we are we have come to a conclusion of today's show we hope you've enjoyed today's um show and uh, would like to thank you know all our experts and guests for tuning in taking time out to discuss the topics and you know uh, we'd like to thank the producer hanya the researchers hanan ashraf tamsila mehrish sofia shanwari zainab khan maria sheikh the technical department um brother asad ahmed and of course my fellow presenter brother abdul halim um for now dear listeners do you have a good morning take care and peace and blessings of allah be upon you all